Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Aldershoga and I'm delighted to be joined by an author who needs very little introduction. His 13 novels have won countless awards. His second novel, Midnight's Children, won the best of the Booker Awards. It is, of course, Salman Rushdie. Salman, welcome. Hello, it's nice to be here. Thank you. You're here to talk about your latest novel, The Golden House, and you've brought along a number of objects that have influenced and inspired your writing. First of all, though, could you give us a brief synopsis? In one sense, you could say it's a family novel. It's about a family of men, a patriarch and three adult sons, as we quite soon discover originally from India, but who have crossed the world to New York City to reinvent themselves. They've changed their names, they've changed their identities, they really don't want to talk about where they came from, and and they're quite clearly hiding some sort of a secret. And they settle down in Greenwich Village in New York, in Manhattan. And so that's the, the story of the novel, is about their life in America and the way in which eventually the past catches up to them. The novel is set during Barack Obama's presidency, and it touches on many issues that were part of the American consciousness at that time, from the rise of identity politics to the rise of Donald Trump. Was this a deliberate decision or did you just find that these issues made their way into your writing organically? Well, it's both really. What I wanted to do is to do something you're not supposed to do, which is to write a novel about the exact moment in which the novel is being written. You know, I mean, you're always told that you need distance and perspective and so on. And that's true, in fact. I mean, it's much, much harder and riskier to write a book right up against the present moment because you have to be almost improvisational. You have to be able to react to what's happening. And if you do it wrong, then the book more or less immediately becomes valueless, like yesterday's newspapers. And hopefully, if you do it right, then it it can capture a moment, you know, and, and kind of freeze it in time. I mean, it's risky, but it's exciting to try and do that. The entire novel is suffused with the contemporary politics, but there's also a lot of writing that has a magical fairy tale quality to it. And that struck me very strongly in the very first paragraph. So let's hear the first of our extracts, the opening extract from the audiobook. On the day of the new president's inauguration, when we worried that he might be murdered as he walked hand in hand with his exceptional wife among the cheering crowds, and when so many of us were close to economic ruin in the aftermath of the bursting of the mortgage bubble, and when Isis was still an Egyptian mother goddess, An uncrowned 70-something king from a faraway country arrived in New York City with his three motherless sons to take possession of the palace of his exile, behaving as if nothing was wrong with the country or the world or his own story. He began to rule over his neighborhood like a benevolent emperor, although in spite of his charming smile and his skill at playing his 1745 Guadagnini violin, He exuded a heavy, cheap odor, the unmistakable smell of crass, despotic danger, the kind of scent that warned us, look out for this guy, because he could order your execution at any moment, if you're wearing a displeasing shirt, for example, or if he wants to sleep with your wife. The next eight years, the years of the 44th president, were also the years of the increasingly erratic and alarming reign over us of the man who called himself Nero Golden, who wasn't really a king, and at the end of whose time there was a large, and metaphorically speaking, apocalyptic fire. That was The Golden House, written by my guest Salman Rushdie, and read by Vikas Adam.
So right away, we're introduced to the central character, Nero Golden, and we'll talk more about him in a moment. But another looming presence in the novel is its setting, a garden in a rather rarefied neighbourhood of Manhattan. Now, there's a tradition here at the Penguin Podcast that we've asked you to bring along some objects that informed and inspired your writing. The first of these is an image of that garden. Could you tell our listeners about it? Yeah, it's surprising that even New Yorkers, a lot of them seem unaware of the existence of this garden. I mean, it's in the very heart of Greenwich Village. One of these private communal gardens, rather like the ones in London that you find in in parts of Notting Hill. It's bounded to the north and south by Bleecker and Houston Streets and to the east and west by McDougall and Sullivan Streets. And the only access to the garden is through the homes whose backyards open into it. It's a place that I've known very well all the time that I've been living in New York because I have friends who have homes there. And it suddenly struck me as a wonderful setting because it has a kind of theatricality. It's as if the characters can play out their stories on this stage of the garden surrounded by watching eyes. It felt to me a little bit reminiscent of Hitchcock's Rear Window where everybody's watching everybody else. And also I thought it gave the novel a pleasing structural element, which is that the private story of the family could take place in this private space and be surrounded immediately by the very bustling public story. I suppose both stories you could describe as tragedies or as comedies. I mean, maybe tragic comedies. So it's like one tragic comedy inside another one. And so we have this hyper private stroke public space, but it's in a city which is itself not quite America. None of these characters are, well, they're either quintessentially American in that they're global figures or they're not American in the Midwest sense. There is a disconnect, isn't there? Almost all the major characters, with the exception of the narrator, are immigrants. The people who now call themselves the Golden Family comes from one part of the world and many of the other residents of the gardens are from elsewhere. I very much wanted to say that this is a city whose character is shaped by immigrants. I mean, not necessarily immigrants from abroad, you know, I mean, immigrants from all over America. And then I wanted the point of view character to be not like that. So this young American man, very anguished about his country and what's happening in it, tends to be rather full of his own talent, even though he hasn't actually done anything yet. Um, But it's latent. And he believes in it. He believes in it. And uh, I liked that younger generation perspective on this this story. We'll come back to René, the narrator, but your main character, Nero Golden, he's named himself after the Roman emperor, not the obvious Roman emperor to name yourself after. And the gardens are his amphitheatre in a way. He's a contradiction, isn't he? He's taken an assumed name because he needs to hide his past, but he's hardly a man capable of keeping a low profile. Yes, and he has a kind of arrogance where he thinks he can get away with it. He's been used to being a man of great power, and he assumes that his great power will do what he needs it to do. So Nero Golden, he's many things. You portray a picture of a man with effortless power who's become very used to it very well in a way that's very recognisable to anyone who's ever encountered someone like that. You write that he's a man who walks towards closed doors at speed because he knows they will open for him. Powerful, corrupt, animalistic. He dangles wickedness under people's noses. Yeah, he doesn't care. You know, in a way, I had him, that character, years before I had the book. I didn't know he was called Nero Golden. I didn't know he would come to New York City. But this idea of this wealthy man who becomes involved with the criminal world 
and then too involved with it and begins to fear the thing that he's become involved with and wants to get away from it. And as anyone knows from any mafia film you've ever seen, getting out is much harder than getting in. And the question is, would it be possible to make such a character sympathetic to the reader without in any way excusing it? I mean, that was a kind of idea that I set myself before I knew the rest of the book, really. It began, really, after the terrorist attacks in Bombay, more than 10 years ago now. And I discovered that there was a strange little nexus in which the super-rich were very often involved on the fringes of the crime community, especially in the movie industry. And the Bombay criminal fraternity had become involved with the jihadists coming in from Pakistan. And I thought, that's a very strange triangle, you know, enormous wealth, criminal mafias and terrorists. And if I can put a character right in the middle of that, that would be an interesting character. So to place him in there and then take him out mm. and then find a way of making your audience, your readers, have some empathy, if not fully sympathy yeah, for because I think one of the things, I, I think the thing about him is that whatever else he may have been, he is a loving father. He has these three sons who are all differently screwed up. He cares about them. And uh, as the story unfolds and and we discover their personal tragedies, I think you begin to, I hope, you begin to care about him as he cares about his children. Let's talk about the next object you brought along to share with the listeners. This is The Satyricon by Petronius. How did this book inspire your writing? Well, first of all, it's a wonderfully satirical portrait of debauched individuals, <laughs> and that's always helpful, particularly when you're talking about characters with, with various kinds of moral deficiency. But it had some specific interest for me. One of the kind of precursors to this novel, in a way, as some people have pointed out, is Gatsby, which is also a novel about the reinvention of the self. Jay Gatsby's real name, not Jay Gatsby. And he's also made himself up. And it's for different reasons. I mean, he, in Gatsby, he does it for love. And in, in this novel, it's more because of fear than love, perhaps one might say. And when Fitzgerald was writing Gatsby, he thought a great deal about the Satyricon. And indeed, one of the early titles of The Great Gatsby was based on the Satyricon. He named, wanted to name it after the character of Trimalchio in the Satyricon. Trimalchio in West Egg, absolutely awful title. <laughs> but, but Not a came, classic like The Great Gatsby. Yeah, no. But he came very close to wanting to call it Trimalchio in West Egg. And The Great Gatsby as a title came very, very late. <laughs> And there's one of the characters in the novel who gives himself that name, gives himself the name of Petronius as his invented self. So he wants to see himself in that kind of Roman hedonistic figure. One of the things about the Satyricon is how contemporary it feels when you read it. It seems to describe a kind of world that still exists. That seemed to me to have some affinity to the kind of world I was trying to create. A world of hyper-wealth, a world of corruption. Yeah, wealth and corruption and a kind of uncaringness. And I think there's something about Nero Golden, certainly, and, and to an extent his children, which is like that. As well as references to The Great Gatsby, there's lots of references to popular music, there's references to film and philosophy, and you seem incredibly at ease with this sort of intertextuality. Do you value this more highly when it comes to exploring a character's inner world than to descriptions of their inner emotional state? This is just the nonsense in my head. You know, I just, <laughs> this is how it comes out. And the, the, particularly the film stuff. I mean, I've been 
as interested in film as in literature most of my life. I think if you grow up in Bombay, you have movies in the blood. There's no way of escaping it. I've never really written centrally out of that knowledge or that interest before. And when I started writing this book, actually, I had a really bad idea about the narrator, René, which is that I thought he might be a writer. And then it, it occurred to me that actually I knew a few people of his age living in that area of New York who were young sort of wannabe filmmakers who had sort of all graduated out of New York film, NYU film school and were trying to make their way. And I thought, well, maybe he's one of them. And the moment I thought that, a whole unsuspected aspect of the book opened up for me, you know, where I realized that I could use my interest in film and give it to him. It would even allow me to write the book in a certain way cinematically, you know, in scenes with a sort of certain idea of montage and with flashbacks and a whole kind of film language that would become available to me. And that was a very late discovery in the writing of the book, but for me made it very much more fun to do. Can we talk a little bit more about René, your your narrator, who is a, a film director or a wannabe film director with great ambitions and great self-confidence, but he also lives in the gardens and he is there to witness the arrival of Nero Goldham and his family. That memorable moment when we meet him is what we're going to hear next. And there were books, inevitably. Books like a disease infesting every corner of our shabby, happy home. I became a writer because of course I did with those forebears, and maybe I chose movies instead of novels or biographies because I knew I couldn't compete with the old folks. But until the Goldens moved into the big house on McDougal, diagonally across the gardens from ours, my post-graduation creativity had been stalled. With the boundless egotism of youth, I had begun to imagine a mighty film, or a Decalogue-style sequence of films, dealing with migration, transformation, fear, danger, rationalism, romanticism, sexual change, the city, cowardice, and courage. Nothing less than a panoramic portrait of my times. My preferred manner would be something I privately called operatic realism, my subject, the conflict between the self and the other. I was trying to make a fictional portrait of my neighborhood, but it was a story without a driving force. My parents didn't have the doomed heroism of properly operatic realist leads, nor did our other neighbors. Bob Dylan was long gone. My celebrated superstar African-American movie director and a red baseball cap film studies professor haughtily said after reading my early screenplays, Very prettily done, kid. But where's the blood? It's too quiet. Where's the engine? Maybe you should allow a flying saucer to land in the goddamn gardens. Maybe you should blow up a building. Just make something happen. Make some noise. I didn't know how. And then the Goldens arrived. And they were my flying saucer, my engine, my bomb. The Golden House, written by my guest Salman Rushdie and read there by Vikas Adam. René, your narrator, he lives a rather privileged life, as he himself acknowledges. He needs something bad or at least something dramatic to happen in order to make his life and his observations into art. Do you feel scornful a little bit of the bubble René lives in? Is that bubble something that you're familiar with with the people that you know? One of the arguments that rages in America now is who's in the bubble. <laughs> that's, to, that's to say New York and a certain kind of bohemian, artsy, 
is not like a lot of the country. So the bubble is, is a very small bubble, and he's aware of that. And he's been brought up by these, you know, very cultured, liberal college professor parents to basically believe that, okay, if you're brought up with these opportunities, then, you know, use them. And then he meets the Goldens because, as he said in that extract, he sort of needs something with blood in it. And he thinks he's found his story. And there are many layers of meta-narrative here, stories within stories within stories, reality, hearsay, myth. Is this something that you enjoy as part of your craft of writing? Or is it somehow indicative of society today, the way we are all trying to write our own scripts on various platforms? Yeah, I think it's both things. I mean, I am interested in certain kind of formal experimentation. I mean, for example, writing a dramatic scene as if it were a screenplay. Uh, there's one or two moments when that happens in, in the text. One of the things the book is about, and, and one of the things that René as a character is anguished about, is this sort of fractured reality. And that fragmentation of the real can be reflected in a book by these kinds of narrative games. It's interesting to me because it is a way of showing a world in which the reality of the world is extremely fractured and fragmented and doesn't cohere in some way. What one person thinks the world is like is incompatible with what another person thinks the world is like. And we have this complexity, these multiple views of the world, but refracted through this strange central place, these gardens with a Hitchcockian rear window feel, and the Belgian René Bjornarator allowing himself to be Tintin and Poirot. He's on a detective journey. Maybe all filmmakers have to be, but he's he's detective as well as narrator. Yes. I mean, he gets a, s a smell of the fact that there's more to the Goldens than they're letting on. He has an instinct for that. Yeah, he wants to nose it out. And yes, he compares himself to the relatively small number of famous Belgians <laughs> that, that exist. <laughs> Belgians, two great detectives. <laughs> exactly. You know, in a sort of comic way, identifies with, with them. By the way, the Golden House itself is the one thing about the gardens in the novel that is not truthful, because actually all the houses on the, the McDougal-Salvagar, they're built at exactly the same time, and they're exactly the same. I just wanted there to be one house that was grander than the other houses. And that leads us on to your next object. Well, this is where the Golden House came from, really. When I was once on a visit to Rome, I was taken to see the now ruined and actually largely buried palace of the actual Emperor Nero, this very large, colossal folly that he built, which was known as the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. It's an incredibly powerful place to be in. Apparently, in the Renaissance, some of the great artists of the Renaissance, like Michelangelo, you know, would, would let themselves down on ropes. They were lowered into a chamber. Into a chamber, and they would see, because there's all these paintings, you know, that are still there. And it struck me that a house can be a character like a human being can, you know. And, and I thought, therefore, to have at the heart of this book a house which is a kind of force in the book as well. And I suppose that's where Nero's decision to call himself Nero Golden did come from that Italian experience. You know. Yeah, I mean, there is a part of the book that quite deliberately looks back at classical Greek and Rome and at the nature of tragedy, which was, of course, something, a form that was created in, in ancient Greek, Greek and, Greece and Rome. And, and it struck me that one of the characteristics of Greek tragedy is that there's a sense of inevitability about it. That sense of the inescapable nature of your fate 
creates an atmosphere of, of foreboding and tension, um, which is the quality of Greek tragedy. I wanted that to happen in this house. I wanted these people to believe that they were the kinds of people who could get away with whatever they felt like getting away with. And yet we would know that, oh, no, you won't. <laughs> and this sense of a reckoning, it's going to befall not just Nero Golden, but his three sons, who've created myths about themselves. These are young men who appear to be erudite, almost godlike figures, but they have very real human troubles, each one of them a very yeah. different tragedy. Yeah, I mean, this is also, of course, a thing from the classics, the idea that the sins of the father will be visited upon the children. And what I wanted also was through the children, that they're not children, they're, they're men. I wanted to be able to explore some of the stuff that's going on in, in America at the moment. So that, for example, one of the sons is an artist and a sort of bohemian figure and perhaps the most New York downtowny figure in the novel. The other two are really, they don't fit anywhere. One of the sons is pretty much high on the spectrum. I mean, whether it's actually Asperger's or not is not clear, but, but it's, he's somewhere up there and very troubled as a result. And the youngest son has a different kind of trouble, which is that he has a, a real conflict about his real gender identity. And of course, that subject of identity interpreted as gender identity is a very big thing right now in New York. And I wanted to let it into the book in some way. That issue of gender identity, which is dominating the lives of the youngest of the sons, D, he is helped on his journey of discovery by a woman he meets. Let's hear an extract now where Rhea shows D around her workplace, the Museum of Identity. The museum was dark punctuated by brightly illuminated objects like exclamations in a monastery. These Stone Age objects could be transgender priestesses, she said. You should really pay attention. It's as important for cis people as for the MTF community. The word took him back to childhood. Suddenly, he was studying Latin again with fierce attention to destroy his brother's power to exclude him by using the secret language of Rome. Prepositions that take the accusative he said, ante, apud, ad, adversus, circum, circa, kitra, kiss, contra, erga, extra, infra. Never mind. Cisalpine and transalpine, Gaul. I get it. The Alps now divide the sexes. I don't like that word, she said. What word? Sex. Oh. Anyway, God is not dead, he said. Not in America, anyway. MTF was male to female. FTM was vice versa. Now she was pouring words over him. Gender fluid, bi-gender, agender, trans with an asterisk, trans asterisk. The difference between woman and female, gender non-conforming, gender queer, non-binary, and, from Native American culture, two-spirit. We've just heard about the Museum of Identity. I'm assuming that's not a real place? No, I made it up. <laughs> it's, I have a feeling that it's going to exist any second. <laughs> I do think it should be there. Well, if they're looking for a founding director. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the general subject of identity has become so big in our time. And so I wanted that umbrella subject of identity to be reflected in the book in some way and hence the museum. Because after all, the central characters of the novel the Golden Family, are people who have changed their identity. You know, they've quite deliberately tried to erase every detail of their past. 
So the subject of identity is quite naturally at the heart of the book. Ria's role in the novel seems to be to reveal to Dee something about himself. And this is true of a number of the female characters, each of whom reveals aspects of the personalities of the male characters. And this is especially true of Vasilisa, who plays a central role in the narrative. Can you tell us a bit about her and how you came to conceive her? She's introduced as more or less a straightforward Russian gold digger. I mean, she's a young, ambitious woman of great beauty who latches on to Nero and eventually marries him. She, again, comes from... There's a kind of semi-mythical origin. One is the old Russian legend of the child-eating witch, Baba Yaga, from Siberia, which is where Vasilisa is from. I mean, in the legend, the witch the witch eats children. One of the children is this girl called Vasilisa. Uh, and Vasilisa, in, in the story, escapes the witch in various ways. I had this idea of making a variation of the story, which is where the witch actually eats the girl and is therefore transformed into the beauty. So that was one way of thinking about her. And she latches on to Nero and much to the chagrin of his entire family, but becomes central to their lives, and then becomes obsessed with having a child, which clearly the existing children are not that keen on as an idea. But I wanted also, in the same way as I was saying that I wanted Nero Golden, in spite of all his flaws, to become a kind of figure worthy of compassion. I also thought about her, that it's not good enough to just have her as a wicked witch. I mean, there has to be another side to her. And at a certain point in the book, she becomes, in the family, really the, the person most understanding of Dee Golden's gender issues. As she says to him when she's helped him try on some of her clothes, she says, you know, maybe I'm not a complete 100% bitch. You know, she's not, and I wanted her to seem to be not that. We've spoken about secrets and the Golden family hiding from something, but the biggest elephant in the room is, of course, why they're in the United States in the first place. And this brings us to your next object, which is a photograph of the Taj Palace Hotel in Mumbai. Can you tell us why you brought this object? In many ways, this was the origin point of the novel, the terrorist attacks in Bombay on the Taj Hotel and, and other places. I mean, obviously, because it's my city of origin, I, it's a place that I still feel very involved with. And after these attacks, I started digging into it. I wanted to find out how this happened and, you know, who did what. I mean, this is a place I've stayed many times. I actually knew some of the people who were at risk of losing their lives and in, in one or two cases who did lose their lives and some who fortunately survived. So I, it felt personal to me, and I wanted to know about it. And as I dived into that story, I learned exactly what had happened, how it had taken place, and how the attack had been assisted logistically by local criminal mafias. Also, the Taj in Bombay is not just a hotel. It's a sort of iconic place in the city. It has something of the place that, that you know, the Eiffel Tower might have in Paris. I mean, it's like a, it's a defining image of the city. So an attack on the Taj is, a, is an attack on the heart of the city. What happens in the novel is that Nero's wife is accidentally killed because she's having tea with friends there. And that's, of course, one of the personal tragedies that causes them to want to, to leave. Well, it's the apparent cause. The thing that we don't find out until later in the novel is the depth of Nero's own involvement with that crime. 
you know, at the heart of the book is this person who has done a horrible thing, who has become involved somewhat against his will, but nevertheless he has become involved in this colossal act of terrorism and is trying to escape that, perhaps even escape it, not just escape from the criminals, but escape from himself. So we have a novel that's set in the United States, but it does draw heavily on Indian politics. Yeah, and the great problem for me was exactly when to reveal what. You know, 90% of the novel takes place in a kind of present moment in Manhattan, but in a way the explanation of that is more than a decade earlier, halfway around the world. Given that they want to keep it secret and not talk about it at all, what do I do? I mean, there's no real rule for any of this. It's just all instinct. It has to feel right. But it is the one time in my life that I've written a book that in a way is a kind of mystery. And the thing about a book with a mystery at its heart is in a way you have to write it backwards. You have to know, obviously I know the answer to the mystery, but I don't necessarily want you to know it right away. And so you have to construct the book in reverse. That was interesting because I've never really written like that before. The darkness in the novel rises up in the United States as well as from India. It's set during Obama's presidency and you reference the rise of the superhero in American culture. But then comes the rise of the supervillain and the novel reaches its climax when the 45th president is sworn in. The narrator, René, expresses his astonishment that a villain could end up as president of the United States. Let us hear that extract now. To step outside that enchanted and now tragic cocoon was to discover that America had left reality behind and entered the comic book universe. D.C., Suchitra said, was under attack by D.C. It was the year of the Joker in Gotham and beyond. The caped crusader was nowhere to be seen. It was not an age of heroes, but his arch-rival in the purple frock coat and striped pantaloons was ubiquitous, clearly delighted to have the stage to himself and hogging the limelight with evident delight. He had seen off the Suicide Squad, his feeble competition, but he permitted a few of his inferiors to think of themselves as future members of a Joker administration. The Penguin, the Riddler, Two-Face, and Poison Ivy lined up behind the Joker in packed arenas, swaying like doo-wop backing singers while their leaders spoke of the unrivaled beauty of white skin and red lips to adoring audiences wearing green fright wigs and chanting in unison, Ha! 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 The origins of the Joker were disputed. The man himself seemed to enjoy allowing contradictory versions to fight for airspace, but on one fact everyone passionate supporters and bitter antagonists, was agreed. He was utterly and certifiably insane. What was astonishing, what made this an election year like no other, was that people backed him because he was insane, not in spite of it. So the 45th president of the United States cast there as a cartoon villain. And that leads us on to your next object, which is a photograph of the Joker from Batman. Can you tell us about that? Well, one of the things I've felt for a long time, really, is that while here we are as ordinary human beings with our ordinary lives and problems and issues, when you rise to the level of power, there's a kind of grotesquerie about it. And that um, the person who eventually became the 45th president was a kind of embodiment of that. I mean, one of the things I've always felt about Trump is that I see him as an effect, not as a cause, out of which these bizarre phenomena like Trump can emerge. And then I just thought, 
in a deck of playing cards, the only two cards that don't behave properly are the Joker and the Trump. And I thought, well, I don't want the word Trump in this book, and so I'll have the Joker instead. And it starts out in the novel as a political campaign that Rene and his girlfriend were making sort of political commercials, you know, to run during the election campaign, used the character of the Joker and indeed Batwoman, fictional Batwoman, in campaign ads. So it has that point of origin as, as something in the story. And then it sort of spirals out of that into becoming a kind of riff about America, this place where a kind of craziness took hold and then succeeded. Towards the end of the novel, you say, and I quote, if human nature were not a mystery, we'd have no need for poets. René discovers a truth about the Golden family, but he also discovers a truth about America and about human nature. And about himself. I came to think of this novel as a rather old-fashioned thing, which is what used to be called a Bildungsroman, which is a, a novel about the getting of wisdom, a young man going through the world and having experiences as a result of which he grows up, he becomes a man. And I began to see that the novel was really as much about René as it was about the Golden Family, that, that in many ways he's the central figure, that he's the person through whose choices and mistakes and ambitions the novel is driven. And by the end of the novel, I think he has, as you say, he has, I think he's learned about his country, he's learned about the Goldens, he's learned about himself. I wanted something at the end of the book to say that in spite of the tragedy of this story, in spite of everything going wrong, both in the private world of the book and in the public world, maybe it is possible for our better selves to express themselves. And I wanted the resolution of the book to be about that. This is as happy as happy endings get in our, in yeah. our time. Yeah, I know. It's not completely, you know, it's not like balloons and streamers and pieces of cake. But, but It's what but, we have to settle for, for a happy ending exactly. in, in the early 21st century. Sort of happy-ish. Salman Rushdie, thank you so much for sharing all those objects with us today. It's fascinating to hear how they inspired the Golden House. Is that always your process when writing? Do you see things then set off on your journey? Very often, yes. I mean, what usually happens, as certainly happened in this case, is that ideas from two or three quite different origin points suddenly seem to me to be the same idea. You know, so that, for instance, here I had this idea which arose from the attack on the Taj Hotel, you know, and, and from digging into that, which is an idea about India, you know, and I had no idea that it had anything to do with America. And in a separate part of the forest, I had this desire to write a big social novel, a kind of Dickensian, as Rene says, operatic realist novel about New York City, partly as a reaction to my previous book, which was much more of a fairy tale. You know, I thought, well, okay, maybe not a fairy tale this time. You know, maybe something with a with a deeper grounding in reality. It didn't occur to me that the idea of the a story taking place in Manhattan may be set in the McDougal Sullivan Gardens, and then this other thing that had happened halfway. It didn't occur to me that they were the same story. And you also had the character of Nero Golden in another clearing in, another in the thing, forest, exactly. And then there's a there's a sudden moment when I think, oh. Yeah, well, if this man wants to leave his his city, his own home, and make himself up in another part of the world, it would be completely natural for him to do that in New York City. Histories of American literature is, is about that. And then I thought, oh, well, that social novel that I'm thinking about is the same novel as this novel. And in the same way as René finds the engine of his story in The Golden Family, 
I mean, so did I. I found that the, the, putting them into this New York novel gave the book its engine. So this novel was brought together in a new clearing in the forest, but yeah. all these different elements. Yeah, that's, and that's... That, it very often happens to me that the way a book comes together is sort of like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I don't even know if it's one puzzle to begin with, and then I gradually begin to see how the bits fit together. And I'm right in imagining that René, the narrator, who's also the protagonist, was the final piece of the jigsaw. Yeah, he really was a late discovery. I knew I wanted a first-person narrator to be a kind of outsider figure watching this family arrive. But who he was and how he interacted with them, etc., that was really the last thing I got. Thank you very much for coming and sharing those objects and telling us about how you brought together these various stories and characters to give us your new novel, The Golden House. Salman Rushdie, goodbye. Thank you. Penguin presents the audiobook edition of White Teeth by Zadie Smith, read by Lenny Henry, Saga Arya, Pippa Bennett-Warner and Ray Patuk. This is a funny, heartwarming exploration of identity that follows three families through three generations and brings the London landscape to life. Alfred Archibald Jones was dressed in corduroy and sat in a fume-filled Cavalier Musketeer estate, face down on the steering wheel, hoping the judgment would not be too heavy upon him. He lay forward in a prostrate cross, jaws slack, arms splayed either side like some fallen angel. Scrunched up in each fist, he held his army service medals, left, and his marriage license, right, for he had decided to take his mistakes with him. This is a multicultural modern classic and is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.